Today's guest is Matt McMullen. Matt began his career in private equity with fascination on the operations of high-performance teams, organizational behavior. After discovering a passion for AI, Matt began working in various roles, creating mechanisms to ensure that everyone who is involved in building AI benefits from it. Since then, he's focused on innovating in the world of data labeling, optimizing for both impact and quality. In this conversation, we'll be diving into how impact sourcing affects AI development, the value of having a nutrition label for how a model is annotated and trained, and more. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to dive into your world. Shake, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So the very first question I'd like to kick things off with, Matt, is how would you describe your work to a five-year-old? I used to work at a company called Cloud Factory, and it was a lot more fun explaining what that company did to a five-year-old or asking that five-year-old what they think we did at work. So the pre-processing and data prep world, it's like setting up stations in a kitchen for cooking dinner. You got to clean your space, get it organized, get all the right tools. You know, first ask everyone in your household like what they need, what they want, and what they're desiring for that dinner. And then ultimately make sure that you have the right ingredients, get them washed, prepped, cut, get the water boiling on time, get everything staged and then well positioned so that everything comes out well. And basically it's the same thing with prep for data before it goes into a computer. On the back side of that, something that will probably come up in this conversation, data sum. It's actually a pretty good analogy to use the kitchen workstation because part of what we do at work, data plus compliance, the compliance side is providing some sort of sticker about all of these ingredients that we've worked with to create this meal. Like, how did we prep it? Like, where did the food come from? How much did it cost? Everything that went into the actual meal. So, yeah, that's what we do at work. But it sounds like the French concept of mise en place applied to the data world. Hopefully, it's a good analogy. Looking at your background, you started your career in the private equity world. What led to your transition into tech and working on data products now? Yeah, so I don't think I'm smart enough or anything like that to be on the finance side of the PE side. I was definitely on the operations side. I kind of always lived, even at a young age, like lived in a world of people possibilities. And early on in my career, I met this founder, this owner of a big holding company well-known in the region that I grew up in, but ultimately he kind of took me under his wing, taught me the operational side of PE, and I got to work with a number of companies underneath the umbrella, up to 20-something companies at one time. And ultimately, we would transition these companies, stage them ready for sale, but it was always a people and operational challenge. So transitioning into tech, I don't know if it was necessarily a finance to tech type of transition as much as it was a transition out of working with 20-something companies at once and somehow having the bandwidth to live and breathe and bleed these companies and what they're all about and who the people are, then to go and working just for one and then having the dedication and the interest to, again, live and breathe that one company. So I think that was mostly the transition in that people possibilities and the operation side of it and strategy and change management really got me ready for a career in management and, and leadership. It makes a lot of sense, especially with your background in psychology and research too. It seems like the best data set to work with at that point in real life. Along that journey then, Matt, what was your first professional experience with the AI world? How did you get started there? I'm sure AI was lingering behind the scenes of our intranet back in the day or some sort of enablement technology. But in terms of working for a company that specifically sold AI or sold services into the AI industry, that didn't happen until a little bit later. But right before that happened, I was working with a company called Big Belly, probably the worst marketing company you've ever seen in your entire life. But you've definitely interacted with our stations. It is the largest smart waste and recycling company in the world and stations on every single continent. 
30,000 stations across New York City, for example, saving the city of Philadelphia like $3 million in recycling and trash costs. But basically, that company built a platform for smart devices. So if you remember, smart devices were the thing, cityscapes and making sure that devices could read everything from pollution to noise detection to pedestrian traffic to like smart parking. Well, we took all those smart devices and put them in this lockable, robust trash can, made it solar powered, and the trash can compacted five times. The reason why it was called Big Belly is because the founder of the company was obsessed with seahorses. And there's a seahorse called a Big Belly, and it can take on five times the amount of its size for food. So again, horrible marketing. Fun fact is that we actually recruited and hired the Segway marketing team. So it got even worse. The company did really well. My job there was to figure out how to take that company and transition its GTM strategy into the private sector, which was truly difficult. It was always selling in municipalities, improvement districts, university campuses, all these companies that would eat it all up. But my first step into the AI sector wasn't until my now wife and I, we moved down to North Carolina. She was at Duke Law School. And I wish I had a like a beautiful answer for this. I've listened to some of your other podcasts and most answers have to do with like, well, I did this in college, did this at university, then did this, and then this, and then I was always in AI or somebody. But my step into AI, it's pretty shallow. I Google searched the top five startups in the Southeast, applied to all of them and met the people at a company called Cloud Factory, fell in love with their product their mission, but more importantly, the people there. And I remember realizing if I don't get this job, there's nothing wrong with them. There's something I need to improve. So I worked my tail off to make sure I could get that job and, and work there and have a semi-long career, especially for a startup there. That doesn't sound shallow at all. It sounds strategic and technical. As you started working more and more in the AI world, one really interesting thing about your background is also you've taken a really active role in the NGO world as well. I mean, two of the experiences of the projects that you work on really stood out as your work on Next Step and Africa AI. How did you get involved with those and how did that differ from the work you were doing at Cloud Factory? It's a good question. The outsourcing world, there's a lot of traditional use cases and a lot of traditional reasons for outsourcing work. The data vendor world, a subset of that outsourcing world, sometimes referred to as BPO, but the data vendor world hasn't really been around for too long. It started really gaining a lot of prominence in media attention, especially in 2015. Companies like Samasource and Cloud Factory and Nine Merit popped up and really applied some sort of impact angle to outsourcing and to take on the established companies in the space. Next step took a different twist. It used to be called Stepwise, and we transitioned it into a 501c3. Next step, what we did is we built a coursework platform for aspiring data analysts. And the entire strategy and hypothesis was, okay, there's Snowflake, there is Databricks, there are these massive companies around the world who are offering incredible technologies. However, there's very limited resources overseas who actually know how to use these resources. So what happens if we match up that talent or aspiring talent with companies who might need access to that talent, to diversified talent, or in some cases, just lower cost talent? So we built a coursework platform that would act like a marketplace. One is where Databricks and Snowflake can build coursework on this platform and they could see how many people were taking their classes and graduating and then seek them out for employment. But then there's a natural demand cycle involved in that. We ended up working with the MasterCard Foundation. They had a, something over like $1 billion of investment in Africa at the time on job creation alone. So they helped us fund the coursework. Next step is still around. But as a 501c, it's obviously moving a little bit slower. Tell us about what you're up to now at Cogito Tech. It's fine. So Cogito is similar to many of the data vendors companies in the space. 
many companies in the data vendor space have evolved to focus on a core competency or a core use case. But ultimately, there's still a tremendous amount of data work that needs to be done for AI companies. So if you think about it, like every day, especially over the past year, I'll give you another example. Before the past year, if I were to ask my parents to name an AI company, they might say IBM. Well, mom, dad, can you name something that might be smaller, like an actual product? They probably couldn't, but up to about a year ago, they would probably name OpenAI or ChatGPT. So every day, these headlines are trumpeting some sort of new and astonishing development in AI, whether or not it's Alexa, Siri, or GPT-4 or something like that. But one thing that's often overlooked is like this unsung hero fueling the development. And that's just like vast workforce that's annotating data, ensuring that the algorithms can even work. So Cogito Tech has taken that focus and is making it useful. So yes, we are helping these companies with data curation and labeling services, but right in return, we are also applying some sort of compliance angle to it too. So because there is such a vast workforce of unsung heroes, we're talking like billions of people. How do we show who these labelers are, who these workforces are from a demographic, from a pay? How do we pull back the curtain? How do we open up the hood to, to really show off their abilities? But more importantly, how do we establish embedded best practices in the data set for these companies? And then the ultimate goal is how do we have some sort of nutrition facts for somebody who's interacting with AI? So Cogito Tech is at the forefront of that. There's a lot of companies, big companies who are also addressing those challenges, such as like Data and Trust Alliance, which is 20 enterprises right now. It basically mirrors exactly what data sum is, and it just was announced in late November. And Kujita Tech is data plus compliance. So data labeling and curation, plus this idea of how do we show the compliance? How do we show the governance that a company like us is, needs to do to be able to create these data sets? For those compliance and governance framework that you're applying to the data project there, What's that drawn from? Is there like a central authority of best practices that you're basing that on, or is it something you've developed in-house? So it's a good question. It's drawn from purely my frustration, and I'm sure many other companies' frustrations. So like I said, I've been in this impact sourcing data vendor world for quite a long time, but there were a lot of more inspirational leaders in this space who have really, really been trying to drive a lot of change and make meaningful impact on the ground in these emerging markets for entire regions of workers. And I'm only just one person who's trying to make a meaningful difference as well. My frustration started and has grown over the past several years because impact doesn't sell. It doesn't matter what company you're interacting with. Just as an example, like when a salesperson slide going through their slide deck demo and they come across, this is how many people we've been able to employ in the past year. And this is the impact that our clients are having. It's a feel good moment for everyone involved, for sure. And it's definitely a checkbox for these companies to have each year within their diversity and inclusion initiatives. Of course it is. And those are great things to strive for and to have on your radar and your focus. But it doesn't sell. There's no way a company will be spending millions of dollars with a leading indicator of their buying behavior being because they want to have impact. It, it all comes down to cost, whether or not it's timeline, speed, quality, it all comes down to cost. So my frustration has been because of that. So how do we not try to force a sale of impact how do we just make it useful? So your question about like what is driving this, it's both that, but also there are plenty of companies and organizations who are also focused on ethical integrity and data governance and providing benchmarks and principles and that type of thing. One is GDPR. I'm sure that every organization within tech is familiar with it. There's also international laws for workforce well-being. But we also have an open contribution model for data sum. 
So data sum is five certificates. And the certificates, I won't bore you with all of them, but they include ethical integrity certification. So the bias levels within a data set, the fair use assertion versus copyright, and the workforce well-being, like what are the employment terms of the team? So those are just two certificates as part of data sum. And this is all open contribution. So all of our clients and the community at large can contribute to advancing the data sum program. And you'll see a number of other organizations, like I already mentioned, the Data and Trust Alliance. They're doing the exact same thing. They have this 30-slide, beautiful, I mean, it's an enterprise, I mean, 20 of them. They put this together, this beautiful side deck presentation of essentially what data sum is and ask for contributions and feedback. It's like, that's exactly what we want. So when you ask for like, hey, what's your North Star? It would say that it's like this open contribution model. So allowing the community to be involved. On a more practical level, looking at how you're customers have actually been using the Datasum product. How has knowing more about the origin of the data impacted their internal AI projects? Does it have an impact on what the requirements look like, what the QA looks like? I'm wondering what the internal impact is on the project lifecycle. Great question. The impact is unbelievably inspiring. So most impact when it comes to compliance and policy and that type of thing. I won't even talk about regulation right now, but the policy and governance and programs and that type of thing, it can be a headache. It can be a startup. I mean, it can be like an enterprise knowing that they're going to move slow always and because they have to jump through hoops and get all these approvals. But every company that we've been interacting with, especially over the past year, has been super intrigued with the pre-processing policy and data governance. So as an example, a medical AI company will come to us saying, we have one point something million words that we need named entity recognition to work on. And we say, okay, great. Like, here's the pricing for it. And then they'll say, but hold on, we actually need five times that amount. Is that something that you got? Is that a service that you can provide? Yes, because we also provide data curation. So we do two things. One is we have a data set from the client. And we're also tasked with going out and curating data from either other third, private third-party companies or public sources, such as like data.world or something like that. We need to both advise, consult the client on what FAIR looks like. So when we take a look at their data set, especially if it has to do with like population data, well, what's the outcome of the AI or what's the outcome of the product that you're trying to create? And have you thought on those terms? Well, great, that your data set that you handed over to us is representative of that desired outcome. So that means we need to go out and find data that comes close to matching or where we have the ability to balance out that fairness. So we're talking like different demographic representation in the data. Whatever they need their AI to have an ideal outcome for is something that we can advise even before the data labeling stage. Then something that often happens is, especially at the enterprise level, Enterprises only pay for deliverables. They don't pay for effort. They don't pay for anything else besides just like, look, you have to get this certain work done on the schedule, and then we'll issue purchase orders throughout the engagement. Fine. Well, with the enterprises that we're interacting with now, when it comes to data sum, we apply data sum to the deliverable so that they have like a two-week snapshot on everything from a compliance perspective that went into that data, that went into the effort to create that data set all the people behind it, the entire workflow, how it was mapped out, the firewall protocols and any issues with that. Everything is notated in that. So it lives as meta, metadata for that data set. So it's changing a lot from the very beginning of the actual interaction with the client. And all of our clients are super intrigued and involved rather than them just thinking, oh man, this is just another hoop I have to crawl through. 
Are there any particular customer stories that you can share? One of the largest companies in the world. Basically, what they need done is there's the open AIs, there's Google just got in trouble, Meta is getting sued for copyright infringement within the training data. Well, this large enterprise said, we understand the realities of copyright and fair use, and we need you to go and build a workflow according to these specs for this project. And we need to issue a legal opinion on your fair use assertion. A lawyer, my wife's a lawyer, her listening to this explanation, she'll be thinking like you butchered that explanation. But the point is, my job as head of corporate development is basically to go out and write that policy. So I had to write the fair use assertion that the way that we were collecting data from certain media platforms, for example, was within fair use. And here's the entire explanation on how. And it's basically an acknowledgement and guarantee that that's how we did it. So that when this big organization is then looking at the data set like and wondering how this was put together, they can see that fair use assertion. But even before that, then their legal team is looking at the fair use assertion and providing a legal opinion, meaning a signature, saying that they agree to it. I think that's probably the key differentiator between a typical engagement over the past year compared to before this past year. And I also think that's a differentiator between like we're doing what I'm trying to do here and what any other company is trying to take on. Oh, it's great to hear that the level of involvement is spreading beyond product and engineering and having leaders from all parts of the company at the table there. That's a huge value and a win right there. Well, to throw a hypothetical at you, Matt, so looking at the world of data annotation, some studies show that the average worker makes like about two, three bucks an hour. Now, if we were to apply the highest level of U.S. labor law and let's say restricted all U.S.-based companies for any training data they had to use, U.S. labor paying a minimum wage of $15. What do you think the impact of that would be to the AI industry as a whole? So basically, if there was some governing organization that said, doesn't matter where in the world these folks live, but we need to raise the standard of the minimum wage for this type of work, something along those lines, and how that would impact. I can tell you right off the bat, the only companies that would be able to afford this type of service would be the major corporations. So immediately, Anybody, any large to small startup, any large company to a small startup would have to look for an alternative. This might be a good thing, though, because we're already seeing advancements in pre-labeled data or automation within the labeling process. There's something wrong with that. You're not going to put our industry out of service. But what you're basically doing is demanding that teams like ours, the workforces that we're employing around the world, that they apply higher level skills, that they adapt to the changes and use more creative thinking. Why wouldn't we want that stimulation on the team? So immediately, the big change would be only the big corporations could be able to afford it. And that means that the cost of AI development would go up, of course. There's another aspect, too, on the other end of what we do, the economic and social impact. It would, of course, increase or could have a positive social impact, like providing higher wages and better working conditions for the teams on the ground in these emerging markets. There would definitely be an uplifting component in these regions. But there's also something else. There's how do you guarantee that the companies actually do pay that amount? Is there a reporting mechanism? But also is pay the only way of making impact? And one sense having more money in, in people's pockets in these emerging regions, sure, but that's just one aspect of impact that, yeah. and I think many of the other ones are often overlooked and never talked about in the media. So to answer your question, AI development, the cost of it definitely goes up. The economic and social impact, no doubt. Like there definitely would be an uplifting in those regions. I think it might be temporary. People do know how to spend their own money, but at the same time, 
there's other ways of making meaningful impact as well. So I would want more attention towards something else rather than just increasing that wage. No, it's a super thoughtful answer. Looking more broadly, as you think about the overarching strategy of your company and which way to evolve things, outside of tech, is there any industry that you draw inspiration from? I would have to say the industry that I think has the most contribution outside of tech. And what I mean by contribution is from those within the industry, people who are preaching best practices, asking questions for clarification on those best practices, writing books, podcasts, you name it. It's unbelievably huge. It's sales. So from a non-traditional industry perspective, I would say following sales thought leaders is actually really interesting. It's this emotional and personalized plus like this functionality aspect of any initiative or any type of sale. And all of these thought leaders are talking about how to bring those things in. Like, how do you create a functional sale? How do you weave in personalization? How do you weave in this emotional aspect? And it's this cycle of like these really, really thought-provoking, articulate, of course, thought leadership. And it's really neat. So I would say the sales sector is definitely something where I'm drawing inspiration from. That also has to do with this world that I try to live in with like people possibilities. That's all sales is. It's to people really trying to do something that's extremely raw and tangible, which is exchanging some sort of product and funds. So yeah, sales sector, I also think that something that's close to that would be maybe like user interface, like if that was a sector, so like a UI. Again, same thing in terms of the sales sector, leadership and thought leaders speaking about their craft and what creates amazing UI and the things that they've learned from bad UI and building those teams and launching and shipping successful products and what that looks like and all the pain that went into it. That's fascinating. There's nothing more useful than taking those learnings and applying it to really any type of change management model or any type of a new initiative or any type of GTM strategy or any type of new team and project. Like those takeaways are golden. Are there any particular sales leaders you find yourself gravitating towards? Yeah. I wonder if they're going to love that I called them out. But have you ever heard of Sales Assembly? I've not. No. So Sales Assembly is completely organic. They've grown so fast. I first was introduced to them in Chicago, where they started when I used to live there about two and a half years ago. And two best friends, unbelievably creative, hilarious people, both with a strong sales individual contributor type of background. They wanted to create this weekly morning breakfast for sales folks across the city. And when I first joined, I'm like, breakfast? Like, why would I ever want to do that? It's really because the people who are joining this company have no other time. I mean, sales is the hardest high-paying job, the easiest low-paying jobs. The folks who are going to a happy hour and getting drunk and not being able to work their hardest the next day are probably the ones who don't have a good pipeline and quota. But the folks at the breakfast were incredible. Great leaders across the city, and they've ballooned. They've grown so fast. It's all organic. Their thought leadership is both spot on and useful, and there's a lot of tangibles. There's a lot of things you can take away. But more importantly, it's really entertaining. Like their banter, everything about that company, the way they hire, it's great. And now they're turning from a true consulting service for sales, like best practices. And like they would have like this hiring branch and these hiring events that they would put on. Instead of just providing services, they're actually moving more to platforms. So all of their advice over the past years lives more evergreen and within these recordings and these modules. And then they also have the personal touch too, but it's incredible. That's a great recommendation. We'll definitely check it out. Looking at your own sales cycles then, a big recent news has been with all the UAI Act becoming finalized soon. Have your customers started talking about that? I'm wondering what the impact of it, if any, it has been on current sales cycles. 
everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talked about the Biden-Harris AI executive order. It seems like the EU is moving extremely quickly. While regulation, I won't really go there in terms of like what that does to innovation. I think it's hard to argue with the fact that regulation does slow down and impede innovation. But is it a good thing? Sure. The reason why I think it's a good thing is because, I know this wasn't your question, but I want to make sure I say it. These calls for regulation are a fantastic thing, especially for companies like mine. It basically takes the biggest loudspeaker in an entire region, entire continent, and it brings attention to something that's been underserved and has been hidden for so long, which is the pre-processing, data prep, data labeling, data curation side of AI. And it starts there, which is fantastic. Most monitoring and most compliance platforms in AI don't come down or don't go up to the pre-processing side. They all stay in within this ivory tower of AI deployment. They never go to the training data. So for these big government entities and groups to draw so much attention to it. It's a fantastic thing. But from a client perspective, in terms of our sales cycle, it's emphasizing that the sale needs to be more consultative and involved than it used to be. Again, it used to always be about costs. Now it's more of how do you do this work? How do you advise us to do this work? That's the question all of our prospects, big and small, are asking. So it's not necessarily slowing it down, but we have to become experts within the regulation. But ultimately, it just comes down to data sum. So the EU Act, once it's formalized next year, I think it's going to be early 2024, we'll take all that into consideration and see what we can change and adjust and better within data sum. But as far as like what our customers are and our prospects are saying, they're saying that they just need more traceability and transparency within the process. And we basically say, great, we thought about this five months ago. This is data sum. So it's just ultimately it's a lot of validation. It's incredible. We're really happy to be in this position. It's years and years of effort going into an overnight success then. Yeah, it's incredible. Yep. Well, Matt, the very last question I have for you is that knowing what you know now, going back in time to your earliest exposures to the AI industry and making a career out of it when you were interviewing for Cloud Factory, what type of advice and perspective would you give that version of Matt in the past? I want to say it's the same thing I try to encourage myself to remember every day. I mean, I think that kind of sounds too superficial. Just to answer your question head on, I think it's something along the lines of like, from a personal perspective and a personal development, I would remind myself, keep your head down, do great work, and your time will come. Like, I am naturally an impatient person. I am attracted to urgency. Like, I love when people find importance in every single thing that they do at work. I think it's incredible. I want to be part of that team. But that often means that how do you slow down? How do you have more perspective? How do you consider all the alternatives? Those types of things. So going back to the early stages of my career, I think that'd be the number one thing. I mean, just as an example, I would have given anything to be a fly on the wall in every single meeting. It doesn't matter what it was about. Because all I want to do is learn from like, how is that meeting run? Like, how is that feedback given? How was it received? How did that argument go? Like, did that person get really mad? It's not just about the drama. Of course, drama and during meetings are cool, but it's really about the, like, I just want to know how these leaders are running these types of meetings and initiatives and decisions. But ultimately, I think the advice is, again, just like, keep your head down, do great work, and your time will come. Like, it's just, it, you have to. You have to put in the mastery of the work. You have to put in the patience, the perseverance, and that personal growth. And one last thing I'll say about that, I just saw it yesterday. Well, my cousin just lost her mother about a month ago. So my aunt passed away. And of course, she is grieving tremendously. And one of the things that she posted was this side-by-side -side of this grievance chart or this challenges in life chart. One is the steady linear uphill 
challenge in how most people like running a marathon and training for a marathon think that that is what life should be celebrated about, like that, that life is just a constant challenge. Well, there's also something else. And next to that on that meme was instead of upward, it's just this upside down bell. And it's this idea of that should also be celebrated. The fact that you are going to have major falls and major setbacks in your career, in your life, and probably both together. But being able to come out of a challenge rut should be celebrated way more than just point A to point B accomplishment. So yeah, that's what I would say. I would go back and continuously remind myself of like just that patience, perseverance, but ultimately like keep your head down, do great work and your time will come. That's sage advice. If one of your sales cycles goes south, just keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing about your thank you, uh, background and your perspective. This has been super fun. Thank you so much, Shake. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 